If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number one of the World According to Zig podcast on this February 10th, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show. We can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. And uh, one of the things that um, is going to be a little bit different going forward on the World According to Zig podcast is, one, we're going to probably be doing this just about every Sunday now. I'm sure there'll be exceptions, especially when we hit uh, vacation time in the summer. But um, that's, that's good. But also, there's going to be a slight shift in subject matter because, as I have mentioned previously, I am now starting a brand new second podcast, and that is called Individual One, and it's about the presidency of Donald Trump very specifically, and it's distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. I urge you to check it out, to subscribe to it, to uh, go to Twitter and follow Individual One Pod, which is the Twitter handle for the podcast. You can find that uh, also by, of course, following me on Twitter. But make sure you subscribe, rate, review the show. You can find the easiest place to find the iTunes link uh, is either via the Individual One Pod uh, Twitter feed or uh, go to freespeechbroadcasting.com, which is, of course, the website for the World According to Zig uh, podcast. But there should be a link up there with a graphic uh, that will get you right to the iTunes version of Individual One. And that, of course, because of the name Individual One, is going to be very focused on Donald Trump. And so um, that doesn't mean there's not going to be Trump news that we'll deal with in the world according to Zig, but I'm not going to get into his nearly the same kind of detail about Trump stuff because that's going to be on Individual One, which is going to be released about twice a week, usually on Sundays and on Wednesdays. So uh, make sure you check out Individual One. We're very excited about that and where that's going to go. And... Uh, and, you know, we'll see what happens with that. But um, like I said, you can find that at freespeechbroadcasting.com. As is usually the case, there's a ton of news, and a lot of it is uh, dealing with Trump. And, and I will deal with that uh, right off the top. Uh, so we'll get the, the Trump news uh, first, and then there's a whole bunch of other things that I want to discuss as well that don't necessarily deal directly or even indirectly with uh, Donald Trump. This, of course, was the week of the State of the Union address, which was uh, fine. It was a really good laundry list of him appealing to different elements of his core base. 
Uh, it was not conservative. It appealed very much to his cult. Uh, and I'm sure it will help uh, his approval rating in a small way and for a very short duration. But just like I often say that nothing matters in a negative direction with Trump, it's not going to matter in a positive direction either <laughs> because we are so polarized that no one changes their mind about anything. Everyone's already made up their mind about Donald Trump, except for maybe, you know, four or 5% of the population. They go whichever way the wind blows. And as soon as the wind stops blowing, which in this day and age is basically two days, uh, you know, they fall back down to earth. And so uh, Trump's approval rating is still going to be right around 41, 42, like it's always been. His negative rating is still going to be in the mid 50s, somewhere 53, 54, 55. And that's the way it's going to be. Uh, barring some sort of black swan event. So I don't really even think that it's all that significant from a political standpoint. <clears throat> uh, I did think it, it was interesting that uh, he said that, and this has gotten no play, in a normal presidency, this would be all we would be talking about uh, from the State of the Union. But if any other president had ever claimed that if he had not been elected, that we would be in a major potentially nuclear war with North Korea, uh, that would be the story. The number one story that would be talked about for days uh, because, you know, it's it's just flat out ridiculous at every level. It's inappropriate. It's wrong. It's not true. It doesn't even make any sense. And um, but we just forget about it because this is Trump being Trump and, you know, more power to him, I guess, that he's been able to figure out, out a way to manipulate the media where he's inoculated from almost anything he does. I mean, he can do virtually anything. We saw it on Twitter last night where he went after Elizabeth Warren, which, you know, I'm, I'm no fan of Elizabeth Warren. I'm well on the record of that. But from a president of the United States, his, his tweet about her and Pocahontas and the Indian thing and implying the trail of tears and who knows what he really meant by that because he's so dumb sometimes. You, you never know how to interpret what he's doing. But from president, completely, totally inappropriate and wrong, but won't have any real impact. Uh, because, you know, people, especially on Twitter, have already made up their minds about Trump, and no one, again, changes their minds about anything. More specifically with North Korea, I, I did find it particularly uh, amazing that the Associated Press put out a story that uh, Trump, while trying to decide whether or not to have a second summit meeting with Kim Jong-un, was told by his advisors, as if he was a producer of a reality TV show, that, you know, there probably isn't going to be as much excitement the second time around because of the sequel not being, you know, as big a deal as, as the original. And that Trump actually said to them, much like a reality TV producer or a pro wrestling producer, that, you know, uh, this isn't true because people won't be able to resist the battle between good and evil. I'm not 100% sure I'm, I know uh, which one is which there. <laughs> Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? Uh, for the purposes of this, I'll accept it. Okay, in the good and evil analogy that Trump's on the good side and Un's the bad side. But if, if, if Un is evil, then why is Trump saying nice things about him? Uh, well, because Un has said nice things about him, and that's the way Trump looks at the world, which is one of his biggest and most significant flaws. It was also interesting at the uh, State of the Union address that uh, Trump declared in a way that, you know, was very dramatic, and I, I certainly support the sentiment that we are never going to be a socialist country. Tonight, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country. From a historical standpoint, I think that's going to be uh, something that's going to be very significant uh, years from now, because 
Uh, frankly, I think we're pushing towards socialism in many ways, mostly because of Donald Trump. Donald Trump has broken the back of fiscal conservatism within his own party. He's spending like a drunken sailor. Uh, he does not believe uh, in the notion of smaller government. He loves bigger government. He loves more executive power. Uh, I, I believe that uh, he, he is effectively uh, socialistic. Not He's not a socialist, but he's socialistic in, in many of his philosophies. But more important than that, I don't believe that we would be uh, diving towards socialism nearly as fast if he was not president. I mean, my gosh, you know, for instance, this... Uh, this Green New Deal bullshit that the Democrats have brought out this week and all, all I mean, they're just, as they always do, overreacting, overplaying their hand. Democrats have been doing this reliably uh, since uh, basically the Johnson administration. They can't help themselves. And you know, now everyone running for president in the woke Olympics is trying to be as socialistic as possible. Well, that's a reaction to Trump as is the Democrats taking over the House of Representatives. I mean, there's a lot more socialists in the, in the House now because of one person, Donald Trump. Correct. And so and that's, that, that we might just be seeing the beginning, because if this thing ends as badly as I've been saying that it might, uh, regardless of whether he wins re-election, which I still think is possible, uh, especially with the way the Democrats are handling things, I think it's becoming increasingly possible that he gets reelected. But eventually he's going to be gone. And once he's gone, he's going to leave the Republican Party in ruins with no ability to hold the line against Democratic, progressive, socialistic insanity. So, uh, you know, when history is written, people may be looking back on that statement as he, as he got cheered by the Republican uh, caucus and say, well, wait a minute, uh, <laughs> The reality turned out to be very different. And of course, you have to suspect everything Trump says is automatically being not accurate or, or, or not truthful because that's just his nature. So uh, I, I find that to be interesting about the speech as, as well. Um, but again, the most important thing about the speech is we no longer live in a world where the State of the Union address is that big of a deal. I mean, it's significant potentially. And it helps the president. And, and, you know, we need to keep it just in case it ever turns into something that could be significant. And But the reality is the state of our union is so fractured that you're really just appealing to people who already like you. And many of these polls showed the people who watched the speech loved it. Well, of course, because the people who hate Trump weren't watching. They, all, you know, all they saw was the, the memes of uh, Nancy Pelosi with that uh, sarcastic uh, clap. Uh, behind him. I mean, that's all they wanted. They just wanted, uh, you know, someone to drop the mic on him, liberals and Trump haters. So, you know, I, I don't want to spend too much time on it because I don't think it's all that significant. Although I do think that that socialism comment uh, might be played years from now in a very, very different context. We, we did learn, and I wrote a column about this <clears throat> for Mediate, something very important that uh, would have potentially shifted the outcome of the 2016 uh, primary elections on the GOP side. I know people doubt that because they think of Trump as he is today and not as he was back then. And the, the cult was far smaller and, and a lot less strong. I mean, you got to remember that in March of 2016, Trump was still stuck at around 32, 33 percent of the national polls in the Republican primary uh, with uh, three or four other candidates against him. And uh, we now know, thanks to the New York Times, that uh, Trump was hemorrhaging money so much that he couldn't even get a loan from Deutsche Bank, the only entity that would ever loan him money since his bankruptcies in the early 90s. 
in order to try to fund one of his golf courses, Turnberry. Now, I go into great detail about this in the Individual One podcast, so uh, make sure you check that out uh, or check out or do both. Check out my column that I wrote for Mediate, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com on that revelation. I wrote a kind of a funny column about uh, what reporting back in March, 20, in March 2016 might have been like based upon just some some of what we now know that we did not know uh, then. Uh, but Trump is going to do a, a sequel uh, uh, to his Kim Jong-un uh, uh, summit. Uh, the, uh, it is amazing to me that he's going to do this in Vietnam. Uh, he avoided Vietnam incredibly well the first time. you think he would try to do the same the second time. But uh, for whatever reason, they chose Vietnam and classic uh, Trump style. And then the other thing that uh, I have to mention, because it deals with an issue I've talked about on this podcast and even all the way back to the old uh, syndicated Sunday night radio show during the 2016 election, is what we've now learned about what's going on with the National Enquirer. And the absolutely bonkers post that was written by Jeff Bezos, the head of Amazon, the head of the Washington Post, about how the National Enquirer is trying to blackmail him. And this goes exactly to what I've been saying since day one, that the relationship between the National Enquirer and Donald Trump is beyond corrupt, that the National Enquirer is a borderline terrorist organization, that it was absolutely outrageous that not only did Donald Trump take the oath of office as president of the United States, knowing that the National Enquirer, by his own admission and, and on purpose, had blackmail information on him that they could use to manipulate him or to sell to foreign governments. I mean, that's amazing to me that Trump did that. Or maybe he didn't even think about it, or he's so naive that he thought that David Becker would never uh, you know, stab him in the back or double-cross him. But now, thanks to Bezos and the blackmail effort on him, we now have very strong indications that that's exactly what happened. That, that it was the Saudi government that, uh, you know, in either in one direction or the other, well, either the National Enquirer was kissing up to them and using their relationship with Trump and maybe their dirt on Trump to get in good with the Saudis and, the, and their money or vice versa or some, something in the middle there. The reality is that when you read between the lines of what Bezos said, it's very darn clear that what really transpired here is exactly what I feared. You got a terrorist organization with blackmail information about the president of the United States, and now they're using foreign governments. They're using that either as a lure for foreign governments or maybe directly with foreign governments, foreign governments that this president, Donald Trump, has been exceedingly soft on, especially with regard to the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, who, by the way, of course, wrote for the Washington Post, owned by Jeff Bezos. And again, I get into the greater detail on this. I get into really, really, really deep detail in the, into the entire National Enquirer, Donald Trump, Jeff Bezos, Saudi Arabia, even get it back to the Tiger Woods situation, which people need to understand to fully understand the context of what the National Enquirer is and is not in the Individual One podcast. So please make sure you check that out. Uh, now, as far as uh, the re-election uh, 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 prospects for Donald Trump, uh, I think that they are increasing. And it's not because he's done anything great. It's because certain things that uh, could have happened uh, have not happened. And the Democrats, uh, as I've already mentioned, are way, way overplaying their hand. And uh, in, in short, you know, first of all, the, the economy is holding strong. The stock market has rebounded a bit. The chaos in his cabinet has 
not uh, resulted in any substantive things going wrong. I mean, he's gotten past uh, Mattis resigning as defense secretary in in uh, outrage over Syria, and yet that has not resulted in any hemorrhaging of his support, either internally or externally. Uh, there's no indication anyone's going to run against him on the Republican side, which is astonishing given the, his low approval ratings. Uh, I mean, when you consider... <laughs> And I'm sure I'll get into this in greater detail in a future podcast. But when you consider what happened in 1968, which I realize is a long time ago, but it's barely within my lifetime, and that Lyndon Johnson did not run for re-election because he didn't think he was popular enough. I mean, Johnson was way more popular in some ways. Well, I shouldn't say way more popular, but certainly at the best case for Trump, that uh, he is no more popular uh, than Lyndon Johnson was, and in many ways is much more unpopular uh, than Lyndon Johnson. And Lyndon Johnson, because uh, you know he didn't do well in the uh, New Hampshire primary, which he wasn't even on the ballot for technically, uh, he ends up um, he ends up uh, not deciding to run for re-election. Well, the idea that no one's even going to forget about Trump not running for re-election, no one's even going to run against him. I guess it's still theoretically possible Trump might announce that he's not going to run. I don't think that's likely. Uh, a lot of people are hoping for that. I don't see that as a, as a, as a real legitimate scenario, uh, partially because he needs the office to protect him in legal matters. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that could or should be happening. There's no indication Mueller's coming out with his report anytime soon. I think Mueller is, is waited too long. I'm not, and I'm not necessarily criticizing for that because I don't think his, his intent is based on timing. I think his intent is based upon doing the, what he thinks is the right thing and making sure he gets this to the bottom of the, the whole Russian Trump uh, saga. But the reality is we're, we're getting too late here. I mean, we're, we're almost into spring and you know, we're, we're, there's not much time. I mean, <laughs> these things take time to develop. And, and once you get anywhere close to an election year, a presidential election year, it's over. You can't do anything. You're, everyone's paralyzed. The Republican Party would never, ever consider dumping Trump in a presidential election year. I mean, obviously I shouldn't say never, but it's hard to comprehend the circumstances that that would cause that to happen. And then, of course, there's the candidates on the Democratic side. So far, they're all a bunch of nut jobs. They all fit right into the to the category of people that, that Trump could theoretically handle pretty darn well. Uh, the most recent, of course, is Elizabeth Warren. Trump went after her hard, and I believe inappropriately for a president, on Twitter last night re- regarding the whole American Indian thing. But let's, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to rip Trump too hard on that, even though it's completely uh, wrong for a president. And it couldn't be more unpresidential for him to do that and, and you know, a bit of, an, of a jack-off move. Uh, this is all Elizabeth Warren's doing. And, it, and it's amazing to me, you know, it, you know maybe if Elizabeth Warren uh, wanted to avoid that kind of criticism, maybe not uh, announce you're running for president the very same week that uh, it is revealed that when you applied to the Texas State Bar as a lawyer, you wrote in apparently your own handwriting your race as American Indian. Maybe not do that. Maybe not run for president at all once that happens. I mean, the reality is Elizabeth Warren is toast. Now, I realize most liberals don't care about the fact that she's been lying about being an American Indian. And, 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 you know, she's lied about lying about it. 
it, it, the evidence is becoming overwhelming that this this was not a, you know one time mention that was insignificant because you know she was just referring to family lore. No, no, no. This it's pretty obvious now. She was using this for her own advantage, and you know that disastrous DNA test. I realize none of that's going to really bother most liberals. Now, some might figure it out and go, wait a minute. <laughs> We've seen this movie before. We've seen this movie with Hillary and her emails and, you know, how one issue can just destroy uh, somebody, especially when you got ha uh, Trump, uh, you know, using the hammer on them every single day. And now this is Trump as president of the United States, not just as a candidate. So, uh, and, and make no mistake, Trump would destroy Warren on this because he's not afraid of it. See, most, and this I'll give Trump credit for, most Republican candidates would be afraid to even raise the American Indian issue in a race against Elizabeth Warren. Trump, obviously, is not afraid of that. Correct. And so uh, that should make liberals very afraid of Elizabeth Warren. The part of this I don't get the, from a strategic standpoint, and of course, this goes back to the whole Trump checkers versus chess thing. Everyone wants to believe that he's a Trump fan, that he, he plays this eight-dimensional chess. To me, the Warren situation proves that he doesn't, as if we needed more proof, because he should want to run against Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> so why are you just going out of your way to destroy her now? Now, maybe he doesn't think she really has a chance and he wants to get, you know, out of the box on it and use up this material while it's still relevant? I don't know. But to me, wouldn't you want to act in a way that that uh, that allowed Elizabeth Warren to get traction and be the nominee? Because I think Warren's one of those that he could beat. I mean, <laughs> again, mostly because he's already made her a laughingstock, at least with her with his base, and maybe even some people who aren't within his base. Because this is weird. I mean, she's clearly not an American Indian. And this always this goes back to uh, what I've talked about a lot with Trump. Trump benefits from the fact that there are dozens, if not hundreds, of scandals in his life. And so he's inoculated. Nothing, you know, against all viruses. Nothing can destroy him because he has has had so many of these things that we, we don't focus on any one. There's a weird phenomenon in politics where one easily understood scandal can do far more to destroy you than a dozen that are worse that aren't easily understood and then don't break through. Well, this breaks through. This is easily understood by the average person. And that's the most dangerous scandal there is. She's clearly not an American Indian. She's claimed to be an American Indian numerous times in her career to gain advantage. Sorry, that's a disqualifier. And Democrats better be smart enough to understand that. Now, I think they will be mostly because they have so many other options. But most of their other options aren't that much better. And, I, you know, I have said numerous times and will continue to say it, Joe Biden, who I'm no big fan of, except in, in comparison to what, where we are now, but Joe Biden is the only Democratic candidate that I feel very confident would beat Donald Trump. Everybody else, it's a crapshoot. Everybody else, it's a crapshoot. And I guess, and I'm sure this is going to be an ongoing issue as this year uh, goes along, you know, Democrats say, and they even say this in some polls, that beating Trump is the most important thing. It's a matter of 
life and death. It's a matter of the future of the country. Okay, I get that. But if that's really the case, if that's really the case, then you have to act that way and not take a flyer on a candidate that makes your heart go pitter-patter and who wins the woke Olympics uh, by being as socialistic and as crazy as you possibly can imagine when that person might not get the job done. Biden, you know, is going to get the, the job done. Every poll indicates it by a wide margin. He's already passed the presidential threshold, being vice president for eight years. He, he's a white guy who appeals to the middle of the country, uh, certainly in the, in the Midwest, uh, the states that Trump needs to win again, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. He is, it's not perfect. He's got problems. But if you want to beat Trump, if that's your goal, it's got to be Biden. But knowing liberals like I do and knowing the process like I do, I think it's going to be a problem for, for Biden to get through this so-called woke Olympics. In fact, sometimes I think, how in the world is he possibly going to do that? I think the best thing Biden has going for him right now is the size of the field. I think Biden needs everybody in there. You know, he's got Kamala Harris and Cory Booker maybe splitting the black vote. Maybe Eric Holder gets in there, too. That's important. Anything that keeps, you know, uh, Kamala Harris from being able to get up into the 20s uh, from a national poll perspective, I think, is good for Biden. So if there's a lot of candidates, if there's, you know, 15, 20 people and Biden's got by far the most name recognition, that puts him in a better position. But if this comes down to, you know, Biden and two or three liberal nut jobs, uh, Biden could be in big trouble because it is clear that liberals, the, the liberal progressive base has lost their freaking mind about Trump. And much like <laughs> the conservative base lost their mind about Obama. And so then the, the natural human reaction is to overcorrect or to think that, you know, you got this great hand, oh, anybody can beat Trump, so let's go ahead and put uh, someone who really gets us excited in there. And that's where you get in trouble. Um, and, and, of course, the, the person who most is emblematic of this is, is AOC, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, who's become like this right-wing, left-wing favorite. I mean, she's the um, social media super celebrity. And, you know, I joked this week that uh, Adam Schiff, the Democratic congressman, is going to open up an investigation as to whether or not AOC is actually a Russian plant on behalf of the 2020 Trump campaign. Because <laughs> how would she be acting any differently if she, if she was a Russian plant? I'm not suggesting that she is. It was meant as a joke. But, they, but I don't think the Russians are that smart or, or that proficient. But, but that's, the, that's the effect of what she's doing. And she puts out this Green New Deal proposal, which is just, you know, completely 100%. It's just flat out ridiculous. And, uh, and this is the type of stuff that to the average American scares the hell out of them in allowing liberals to get power. If liberals got rid of this political correctness bullshit and this extreme, the extreme positions on abortion and, uh, and climate change, they could basically have their way with the rest of the, of the issues because most of America is becoming socialistic, at least in, in, in mentality. And the fact that they don't see this, I guess there's good and bad in that, uh, but it's obvious that they don't. And so all these presidential candidates are lopping on 
uh, to AOC uh, because she's a social media star. And of course, how many retweets you get and, you know, and, and uh, how many shares uh, on Facebook or what your TV ratings are, whatever, that's all that matters now. And because she's uh, cute and controversial, uh, that and then the, and the the right makes her a bigger deal, and the left and then the left reacts makes her a bigger deal, and then the right reacts to that. It's like this symbiotic relationship of creating this bullshit celebrity of this moron who has no power. She has no power. She's not even a committee head. She has no knowledge. I mean, she seems like a nice enough girl, but she's insignificant. And of course, I love the fact that the conservative media tries to, I can't, I can't tell you how many emails I get a day from alleged conservative media outlets that AOC has been embarrassed again by saying some crazy thing. Compare it to Trump. I mean, and she's not the freaking president. I mean, she's just a, a, a damn congressman from New York. But of course, Trump is what I think is driving part of this, is that there's this need on the conservative media one to create a distraction and to go see them to see, see, see. Well, no, there's no equivalence there. There's no equivalence, yet some pretty respectable people on the right have, have acted like there is an equivalence between AOC and Trump. And there's not. She's a media creation that has no power. He's a media creation that is the president of the freaking United States of America. And by the way, I'm going to, and I keep waiting for the right time to write about this at Mediate. Uh, and I think it's going to happen soon based upon the way the weather forecast is for this week. But uh, the most untold story with regard to climate, maybe ever, uh, and since this whole Green New Deal has been a big issue this week, is that uh, here in California and across the country, there is virtually no drought. Now, we were told in 2014 we were in permanent drought here in California. There is no sign of drought. And it's not just because of a few rainy days, folks. I realize that's weather, not climate. I get it. I get it. Okay. Nobody watches the drought tracker, the drought monitor put out by the U.S. government more carefully than I do because, and here's why, and I, and I want to get too deeply into it, but it, it's an important point. And, and this is, goes to the heart of why I am a skeptic about man-made catastrophic global warming or climate change. We are told constantly, in fact, new data came out this week, that the last 18 years have been like 17 of the hottest ever or, you know, whatever. Every single year is a new record for the global temperature. And that no question about it, that in recorded history, which is not more near as large as the climate alarmists would like you to believe, but in the recorded history, the last 20 years have been by far the hottest ever. Okay. I'm willing to accept that that's possible. I haven't felt it. But I realize I live in, you know, I've lived all over the country, but I live in a, obviously a very, as we all do, a very, 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 very tiny little segment of the whole globe. So is it possible that in places where I'm not living, it's hotter than normal? Or is it possible that as human, we wouldn't be able to perceive such small differences like half a degree uh, or maybe at, at most a degree over 20 years? Is it possible we just wouldn't notice that? Yeah, that's all possible. I'm willing to accept that that's all possible. Except, here's the problem. If we use logic, if, the earth, if, if, if all these years have been the hottest ever, what would be the impact of that? Now, the impact of that would be, the, there, would be there would be one impact above all others. 
And that is, especially here in America, given our unique geographic characteristics, we would see increased drought. Now, we wouldn't see increased drought everywhere because with higher temperatures, I get it. Theoretically, although I don't think the evidence supports this, you would see more tropical storms, more hurricanes, more thunderstorms, all of which create more rain. And sure enough, Texas and Florida, as well as the Gulf Coast, there is virtually, in fact, I believe this week, zero drought in any of those areas. Zero. Okay. That's consistent with, in theory, the, the higher temperatures have just increased uh, tropical storms, hurricanes, thunderstorms, which create more rain. I get it. Don't necessarily believe it, but okay. Here's why California becomes so important. California is important because, one, we were told, we were told just a few months ago that the wildfires that, that engulfed this state were because of global warming. Max Boot from the Washington Post changed his opinion on global warming as a, from a skeptic to a believer because of the wildfires here in California. That was just a few freaking months ago. We were told by the governor in 2014, California is in permanent drought. And we were in a really bad drought in 2014. Really bad. Significant. But here's the thing. California has no hurricanes. California has no tropical storms. California hardly has any thunderstorms. So there's zero benefit to California. By the way, very little benefit to the middle of the country either. Maybe thunderstorms, but in the breadbasket of America. And by the way, in Alaska... No benefit at all to the warmer temperature causing greater rainfall. In fact, you would think it would be the opposite. Well, when you go, it's interesting that the 20 years have been so hot. Because guess how long the data goes back for drought in America? That's right. It's exactly the same time period. We have detailed data. From, uh, of drought and lack thereof for every part of both the continental and the entire United States, including Alaska, which is obviously a huge part of this, for the last 19 years. And I have gone through it with a fine-tooth comb. And not only is there no evidence that drought is increasing after all these 20 years of hotness, the evidence is overwhelming that it's decreasing. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Now, drought, again, it's important to point out, is not weather. These, these, cal these calculations are impacted over years of data. It takes years for an area of drought to become deemed not in drought and vice versa. So it's not like, you know, a couple of days of rain and all of a sudden we're not in drought anymore. This, this takes into account years of data and it's seasonally adjusted. And yet... It's very cyclical. It's incredibly cyclical, like weather has always been. You go through periods of drought, then you have periods of, of rain, and then you get more drought. And here in California, that's particularly dramatic because we have a very short rainy season. Very short. And when you have a very short rainy season, like two months, guess what can happen? You can miss a rainy season. You might even miss two rainy seasons. And once you do that, now you got a drought because the other 10 months of the year, there's virtually no chance of rain, any significant rain. 
and then things get dry. I mean, that's why much of California is a freaking desert. We're not supposed to be getting rain. Well, this year, with no El Nino, that's another important thing, because in the past, they've always said, well, this is just an El Nino year, because after the 2014 hysteria, we had a couple of good years of rain. Well, that's just El Nino. Well, there's no El Nino. In fact, this has been the coldest winter I can recall in 15 years of living in California, and it's either the rainiest or the second rainiest in those 15 years. But we're also getting massive amounts of snow in the Sierra Mountains, which is really the most important thing with regard to where, what our water situation is. The, the amount of snowfall in the Sierras is breaking every known record, and it's still expected to snow there for the next several days. So why is this happening? Well, I'm, what my suggestion is, is maybe, maybe there's a problem with the data regarding temperature that maybe there's something in the data as they adjust for how the data is accumulated and comparing it to past years. Because you got to remember, it is absurd to claim that the data we have today can be compared to the data of 100 years ago. It's absurd. There, people weren't living in the same places. There weren't as many, nearly as many people. We didn't have satellite technology. There, there is a completely different way of calculating this so-called global temperature than there ever has been before. So maybe it's not a coincidence that the eight, 17 of the last 18 years are the hottest years on record. Maybe it's built in the way the data is collected and interpreted. And of course, I'm suspicious because, and I'm not alleging a conspiracy, although other people might, it's suspicious, of course, that the people that are doing these calculations have a clear incentive for the temperature to be increasing because <laughs> this, this is a cottage industry, not even cottage industry, it's a huge industry. So it's, to me, I always go by what's the impact, what's the effect, what can we know for sure? The data is interesting, but it's not definitive because it's possible there's a flaw in the data, and it wouldn't take much of a flaw because we're only talking about half a degree or so, maybe a degree, depending on how long you go. Now, I realize if that continues, if you extrapolate that, that's potentially catastrophic. But guess what? These things are cyclical. And all you need to do to prove that is go to the, just put in to Google, drought monitor, and go to the official United States website on this. And it couldn't be more clear cut. And, and I think most people intrinsically understand this. All right. Um, now, speaking of, of, of things that uh, are perceived that are not true, I got to mention Jussie Smollett. I've written two columns, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, about Jussie Smollett. He's the Empire TV actor who claimed a couple of weeks ago that he was the victim of a heinous, horrible hate crime in Chicago. And, of course, the, immediately the liberal media and the Democrats jumped to his defense. He was, uh, you know, a hero, uh, so courageous. And, uh, and he uh, obviously, uh, this was true. There's no reason to doubt this or even consider doubting this. And I didn't give it a lot of thought at first. It seemed a little strange. But then as the details started to come out, I'm like, wait a minute. Hold on. Uh you mean to tell me that this happened at 2 a.m. in the middle of a polar vortex, by the way, speaking of global warming, uh, and that uh, his story is, and this was not his full story to the police, but his, his story later on, if you put it all together, is basically that there were two 
Donald Trump supporting goons walking around at 2 a.m. on a cold night in Chicago while they had a rope and bleach. And what were they doing? Just waiting for to find a, a black guy to, to beat up. And of course, he also said that uh, that this had to do with his homosexuality. Well, that meant that they had to know who he was, because otherwise, how would they know uh, that he's gay? <laughs> especially uh, at night uh, when you're bundled up. There's there's not even the slightest possible indication someone could be gay. You're not wearing a sign on your back, I'm gay. Uh, how you would even, but of course that also raises another question is, okay, so these MAGA goons, these Trump fans, they're fans of the show Empire enough to know who Jussie Smollett is, but they just hate him so much that they're gonna walk around Chicago at 2 a.m. hoping to run into him or do they just recognize him in the dark? How the hell do you recognize someone in the dark who, you know, you apparently would have enough clothes on to stay warm? How is that possible? How does that make any sense? And then after this attack where they they hang him figuratively with a noose and I guess pour bleach on him and supposedly break a rib and he gets a, a mark on his face, that you, you, you say to him, this is MAGA country in Chicago? I, okay. If this happened in the middle of the summer of Alabama, you might be going, oh, okay, all right, I'm, I'm open on that. But this is the middle of winter in Chicago? And the other thing about this being in Chicago is not only is this a very liberal area, a very black area, uh, but also it's an area with a whole lot of surveillance cameras. <laughs> and sure enough, um, my BS detector started going off uh, at, at almost an 11 uh, when... Uh, the police released the information that uh, they can't find this attack on any of the surveillance video, and they have almost all of Smollett's uh, movements accounted for. Well, first of all, that's not possible. Second of all, the police wouldn't be putting that out there if the police wasn't highly suspicious of what was really going on here. And virtually everything we've learned since then has been consistent with that vision of this not being a true story. So I wrote two columns. One didn't get much attention. And the second one, which I wrote yesterday, which I urge you to check out at freespeechbroadcasting.com, got a lot of attention. Uh, and that is because uh, I have uh, done a column about the fact that there is a massive chasm between what the Chicago police and the media are saying publicly, which is, well, they can't prove his story, but uh, we're still going along the presumption that it's true, and police are trying to verify it, but they just can't do it. That's the public party line on this story in Chicago and certainly nationally. But after speaking to a couple of people very close to this, that's not what people are saying behind the scenes. People behind the scenes are saying this is bullshit. Uh, the media sources are universally saying this is bullshit, and we expect to be able to prove that it's bullshit eventually. Now, how they're going to do that, I don't know. I am told that it's possible they might be able to find the origin of that rope. And if they find the origin of that rope, then we, we've got a totally different story. I don't know that for a fact. I'm getting that secondhand, but that's from somebody who is a lot closer to the situation than I am and very close to the story. So uh, the, the reality is that behind the scenes, nobody in the media and the police are giving any indication they believe the story. But they're afraid to report that. Why? Because 
Smollett has enormous political correctness protection. His force field is about as strong as it gets. He is a celebrity. He's a liberal. He is black. He is gay. He is anti-Trump. And he's the victim of a hate crime. I mean, that's, I mean, that's pinball-like stuff right there. You, it's almost impossible to get more PC protection than that. And so that makes everyone deathly afraid of making the allegation, unless you're John Sigler, who just doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> That's what makes me a dangerous man, because John Sigler just doesn't give a fuck. So uh, I put it out there, and the reaction has been very strong. The most interesting reaction is that a couple members of the Chicago media have been offended that somehow I have suggested that they have not been reporting all the facts. I didn't say that. Well... I mean, okay, I, I implied that, but the, here's the reality. There's a difference between facts and reality. Yeah, the, there, there are elements of the Chicago media that are reporting the facts, but they're not putting them into proper context, nor are they reporting the fact that police sources don't believe the story. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if this was a far less sympathetic victim and the police was saying, the police were saying universally behind the scenes, this didn't happen, the Chicago media would find a way to get that out there. But they're not because they're afraid because this is a story you could get fired over. That's what this is about. You, you, you go after a, uh, a guy with this much protection in a town like Chicago and it turns out not to be proven true, you're fucked, okay? So no one wants to do that and no one wants to be the first on this story. So I don't know for sure what's going to happen. I am skeptical that this is ever going to be proven either direction. I don't, I'm sure it's never going to be proven that it happened, uh, at least not the way that Smollett said. But I am skeptical that it will ever be disproven because it's very, as I know from the Sandusky case, it's very difficult to, to disprove a, a negative. The reality is, and by the way, in hour number two, I'm, I'm, which I forgot to mention, of the podcast where we interviewed Jerry Sandusky's lawyer for the first time, Al Lindsay, about what happened in his appeal this week. So make sure you check that out. But uh, there are people very close to this case who are covering it who have even said so on Twitter that they believe that this will be solved and that either uh, there will be uh, these perpetrators will be brought to justice or that Smollett will be charged with filing a false report. I don't believe that. I just, I'm not that optimistic. I, I think that it, if it ever came to that, there would be a way to muddy the waters and everyone would just move on. I, that's what I believe will happen. But there are people much closer to this than me who believe differently. I hope they're right. We'll see. And I'll certainly uh, keep an eye on it. There's also been the insanity in, in Virginia. And I'll just say a couple things about what's going on in Virginia. And as you know, I'm a contrarian by heart. I'm someone who doesn't trust the news media, and every time we jump on something, it's almost always wrong. The media is almost always wrong, uh, you know, no matter what it is. When they, when they speak universally, you can be assured there's almost something always wrong. Correct. And, uh, and with regard to Ralph Northam, the, the uh, governor of Virginia, his old medical school uh, yearbook had this uh, photo of two guys, one in a Klan outfit and one in blackface which is pretty amazing and shocking and weird and potentially wrong, especially in Virginia, given the history of the state of Virginia. Now, uh, and, and I understand the outrage, and I get why people are calling for his resignation. His explanation at first was to apologize, and then he said, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure I'm the guy in the photo. And the reason why I'm, I'm not sure I'm the guy in the photo is because I remember dressing up in what he, I guess you could call blackface for a Michael Jackson dance contest. 
Now, this was mocked at his press conference, understandably so, because at one point he's asked whether or not he can still moonwalk, and his wife had to step in to stop him from doing so, which was just as bizarre as it possibly gets. Um, but that's the world we're now living in. But here's the thing, that, and, and this was not raised by me, although I, I, I put it out there. There's a conservative blogger whom I respect named Paterico who has a theory about that photograph, which makes a hell of a lot of sense to me. And it's amazing to me that this has not gotten more attraction. Go and look at the photo of those two people. And I think part of the problem is we don't know for sure is Northam the guy in blackface or is he in the guy in the Klan outfit. To me, it's obvious he's not in the guy in the Klan outfit because the guy in the Klan outfit is shorter than the guy in blackface and Northam is a tall guy. So, And also, why would you put on your on somebody's uh, yearbook page a photo where they're they're not visible so just basic oxum's razor says he's the guy in blackface but here's the most interesting thing take a good look at that photograph that's michael jackson not michael jackson literally that's somebody dressing up like michael jackson he's got the hat the glasses and the bow tie all used by Michael Jackson at that time. Of course, I think part of the problem here is people no longer think of Michael Jackson as a black guy because when he died, he was effectively white because of his skin condition and the bleaching. Well, back in the early 80s, Michael Jackson's still a black guy. And to me, I think Northam's memory is mixed up. I think Northam is conflated or maybe deconflated what was either one or two events and he thinks that therefore that that's not him now i don't know the exact order of things but you can certainly understand a scenario where let's say he he does this michael jackson thing right he wins this dance contest and he's really proud of himself hey i won a michael jackson dance contest and so then there's some sort of costume party whether it's halloween or whatever and he wants to revisit this because he's like bragging, hey, I won a Michael Jackson con dance contest. So he revisits his costume. He dresses up at this party as Michael Jackson. And then at the party, some moron has dressed up like a Klan guy. And they decide, hey, this will be funny. The black guy and the Klan guy take a picture together. And then somehow, because people think it's hilarious, it gets into his yearbook. That to me makes sense. Whether that means he should resign, I don't know. I, I don't fully understand the outrage over blackface when you're trying to be a black person who you admire. Because Michael Jackson at that time was a guy who you would admire. So to me, if you're trying to emulate a black guy or a black woman uh, in a positive way, I don't see how blackface is inherently racist. But hey, I don't write the rules of insanity anymore in this PC world. But that's the Northam situation. And, and I think Northam's going to survive now largely because of what's happened to his lieutenant governor. And his lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, has been hit with not one but two allegations of sexual assault. Now, <laughs> I'm not sure what to make of this. And I'm not going to, I'm tired of defending people who are accused of these things, although no one ever wants to do so. But let me just raise a couple of concerns I have about the Fairfax allegations. One, they're very, very old, which always makes me concerned that people all of a sudden come forward. The first allegation, while there's a lot more evidence to indicate that something happened than there was against Brett Kavanaugh, I mean, she actually has the date and the place and a description specifically what happened. Supposedly, she told people at least somewhat contemporaneously, or maybe that's possible. It's not been def definitive in my view yet. But the reality is, 
It's a more solid allegation than certainly the one that uh, Christine Ford made against Kavanaugh. However, there's to me, the biggest problem with the first allegation is she decides to make it right in the middle of the Me Too hysteria. In late 2017, after he is elected governor, lieutenant governor of Virginia. That makes me queasy right off the bat. And here's why. Because when I read her description of this, it feels like could, underlying could, could be a situation that is being reinterpreted uh, 13 years later. Then, in other words, this was an ambiguous sexual situation where she wasn't really that into it. He was into it. He got her to do things she didn't want to do, specifically oral sex. Uh, but at the time, she, you know, she was like, okay, you know, whatever. I kind of, whatever, whatever she was thinking. It happened. She didn't make a fuss about it. He thought we just had a great time. She didn't like it. And it's always bothered her. And then 13 years later, all of a sudden, Me Too is all the rage and all the rules for what rape is change. And he becomes a prominent person right in the middle of this, having been elected lieutenant governor of, of Virginia. I can certainly see that over 13 years, her giving him oral sex when she didn't want to becomes, you know, let's say, let's say coercion into oral sex becomes forced into oral sex. And now you've got assault. And then over 13 years, emotions are added, and what was an ambiguous situation becomes rape. I'm not, I don't know this, but that's a scenario that makes some sense. But then there was a second allegation that came out. And the second allegation seemed to a lot of people to cement it. Aha, he's toast. Two people wouldn't lie about this. Okay, I get it. This supposedly the second person. He raped this woman while he was at Duke. Now, I, I at that point thought, okay, he must be, he must be uh, guilty of something, or he's probably guilty, although it was really odd that when he was hit with the first allegation, he supposedly told people in a meeting, fuck that bitch. Now, there's only two scenarios there as a politician in this situation. If you say fuck that bitch about someone claiming to, to have been raped by you, or assaulted by you, you are either a delusional sociopath or you're innocent. <laughs> There's really no in-between there. Because if you're innocent, you're pissed off that this woman is taking something that happened 13 years ago and totally shifting it. You still shouldn't say it that way. It's dumb. But at least in trying to interpret his reaction, that makes some sense. Now let's go to the second allegation. At first, that seems pretty solid. But now we learn today, and I tweeted this, and I find this amazing. This is not getting any publicity. The same woman who made the second allegation against Fairfax is also now making an allegation against a Duke basketball player from 1999 that she's never mentioned before. So hold on a second. 20 years later, all of a sudden, she claims it's twice at Duke she was raped by people who were either prominent at the time or ended up being prominent. I'm sorry, that is fishy. And when I tweeted it, and I, this I have no idea the credibility of this, although I'm pretty good at being able to determine if someone's a crackpot or not. Immediately, someone messaged me saying that they know this second accuser, and then in, in their words, she's completely insane. Now, this person wasn't saying that this means they're lying, because obviously, if you've been raped twice at Duke, you might, you know, 
turn into insane, but that this person, that it's universally accepted among her peer group that she's insane and that people ought to know this. And I am always suspicious of the second allegation. Once a media storm happens to a prominent person, that second one almost always comes and inevitably there's a, you know, unless you got a situation where the guy's clearly guilty, there's usually a problem. And when you consider that this is Duke, this is Duke. We just had the, the, the Duke rape case obviously turned out to be a complete fraud. And, uh, you know, I hope Duke is a hell of a lot more careful this time around than they were during the Duke lacrosse case, which turned out to be totally false. I, so I don't know what to make of the Fairfax situation. He is He's saying he wants due process. I hope he gets it. I hope we find out the truth. But I am not 100% convinced he's guilty yet. And how bizarre would it be that the white governor of Virginia survives blackface because the black lieutenant governor of Virginia is falsely accused of sexual assault? That would That would be... Bizarre, even by 2019 standards, but that's where we might be. All right, one last thing. The Super Bowl uh, happened last week. Uh, boring as hell. Uh, I loved low-scoring football. I loved defensive football, and that was the least memorable uh, Super Bowl maybe of my lifetime, although you have to give it to the Patriots. What they've done is just amazing. It, it is. Uh, it, 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 we'll never see the likes of it again. We'll never see Tom Brady or Bill Belichick again, and I, and I respect the hell out of that. Uh, here in Los Angeles, as I predicted, the TV ratings were actually below average for the country, which is unheard of considering the fact that the Los Angeles Rams were in the game, although they may not have actually been in the game. It might have been a rumor that they were in the game. Their defense was in the game, but their offense was never really in the game. Uh, for me, the most memorable moment of the whole entire broadcast was that amazing uh, NFL 100 commercial, which was highlighted by my friend Frank O'Hara's recreating the Immaculate Reception. Although it, it's so funny, of, uh, typical of my life, I, I was thrilled to see Franco uh, starring. You know, He had basically the climatic, climactic moment of that uh, commercial, which is an awesome commercial. But I was almost, I was actually a little pissed at Franco because uh, I realized in, in, when they, when they uh, did the uh, behind the scenes making of the commercial that it was filmed here in Los Angeles. And, and Franco has been saying, uh, you know, that he wants to get me on the golf course and I keep saying he's going to dodge me. And here he, he apparently, I'm guessing that he must have, they must have done this at the end of the regular season. I, so it wasn't that long ago. So Franco's in L.A., and he doesn't even give me a phone call to say, hey, let's get on the golf course. Now, maybe it was a quick in and out, or maybe it was raining that day or whatever, but, but only in my world would be the, the best moment of the Super Bowl turn sour when I'm like, wait a minute, Franco, why the hell didn't you call me? You're still dodging me on the golf course. But that's just the way John Zickler's life works. Uh, one other moment no, note on the Super Bowl, uh, Bob Costas is out with a uh, – well, he's not out. ESPN is out with a story involving Bob Costas where Costas says now that last year's Super Bowl, he was removed from being the host of the Super Bowl because of his comments about the NFL and head injuries and concussions, which I believe him. I believe Costas. I know Costas a little bit. I've, I've had numerous communications with him about the Penn State, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky uh, saga. Uh, and, and to me, this is a very troubling story because Bob Costas is as big as it gets. And for him to be removed from the Super Bowl without the NFL L even requesting it, that's the part that's really buzz, uh, troubling. 
it would be scandalous, but at least understandable if the NFL said, sorry, we cannot have Bob Costas hosting our, our premier event when he's been on record criticizing the NFL about uh, head injuries and concussions and their impact. But the NFL didn't even have to do that. This was self-censorship by NBC, which goes to show you how this works. If this can even happen to Bob Costas, what chance does any non-celebrity reporter who's not making multi-million dollars a year have of going up against a corporate juggernaut like the NFL? It's not possible. And this is why so many important stories never get told because they're too dangerous to the corporate structure. And by the way, Penn State Joe Paterno Sandusky is one of them. So uh, that'll, that's a pretty good note to end because in hour number two, I urge you to uh, check out my interview that I just did uh, today with Al Lindsay. First time we've ever done an interview with him. He's Jerry Sandusky's appeal lawyer in an interview that will knock your socks off on so many levels. But it, we did it because there was some big news revolving uh, Jerry Sandusky's uh, appeal for a new trial and his sentencing being uh, revoked and will be resentenced uh, by a new judge in Pennsylvania. So check that out in hour number two. As always, uh, well, actually, I'm going to add three things to ask of you instead of two. Uh, number one, make sure you check out the Individual One podcast where we get deeply into the whole Trump uh, situation that will be happening biweekly. Make sure you subscribe to that podcast and rate and review it. You can find out more about it at my uh, Twitter page or Individual One Pod. Uh, at Twitter or freespeechbroadcasting.com, but please make sure you do that. Number two, uh, share that and this uh, podcast via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number three, do yourself a favor. If you're one of those people who sleeps, when you sleep, you use sheets. Pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mmm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.